You're listening to Intellectual Erection, a place where we talk about the naughty. Oh, to stimulate your thinking. You're listening. You're listening to Intellectual Erection. Intellectual, intellectual, intellectual Erection. Welcome back to Intellectual Erection. I'm one of your hosts, Patrick. This is actually a backlogged episode that Yaz and I did a little while ago, and we didn't get a chance to release it initially because the structure and the format at the time we wanted to put a whole bunch of things together into an episode on sex and spirituality and it didn't end up happening but we still had this very good juicy interview with mia schachter and we want to put it out on its own because there's a lot of really cool and interesting information here so without further ado here is mia schachter on consent sex and spirituality and then that spiel i do what is it and as always listen subscribe review and most of all enjoy i'm mia schachter i use they them pronouns i'm a consent educator and an intimacy coordinator for tv and film all right so last time you were on this podcast you were just talking to me and we were talking about your work in the film industry teaching people it was consent, basically. Not exactly. Um, intimacy coordination is is really a um, like a communication department mm. on set, um, and most of the time, I really don't get to bring all of that sort of education stuff into onto a set. There's not enough time. That's not really what I'm getting hired for. I'm using it as a practice. I'm you know it's part of what I'm doing, but I'm not teaching it on a set. That's a sort of obviously very related and overlapping thing that I do, but it's a separate part of my life. So you probably get this question all the time, but (laughs) so what is exactly an intimacy coordinator? What are you doing? Yeah, I am helping the director achieve their vision while staying within the actor's comfort level. And so I'm sometimes helping actors find what that comfort level is, figure out what their boundaries are, Um, communicate them to each other. And I'm coordinating across departments. So production, legal, sometimes costumes, makeup, props, sometimes set decoration, and the actors to make sure that all the information about these scenes is flowing so that everyone's on the same page. Which to me still sounds like consent wizardry. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because you're basically trying to get everybody on on a sort of a consensual ground when it comes to intimacy on set between all the different layers, production and acting and, and, and whatnot. Definitely. I, I, I think I'm the consent wizard wherever I go. It's just a matter of what exactly people are hiring me for. And I'm not really on a set in an educational capacity. Right. So I'd love to get hired that way to like consult or something like that. That's certainly um, available. It's just not something that I've encountered. So then let's switch gears and talk about your, actual consent wizardry in terms of your sex ed what do you do there um I don't teach sex ed I my work is um actually very interestingly enough like doesn't 
is more based on like interpersonal consent and like consent with yourself and consent with, you know, the people in your life um, and less focused on sex. So I definitely talk about sex and I work with people who come to me um, like for private sessions who are working through trauma and um, or trying to be better at consent in a sexual space or, um, you know, dealing with uh, like wanting to enhance their sex life via consent for sure. Um, but even like to my surprise, most of my work is not super sexual. Well, you mentioned something there about people dealing with consent with themselves. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask about. Yeah, because, okay, yeah. so we had a we had a discussion with a sex educator. My friend Eva Bloom. In mm-hmm. another episode, and I was trying to just have this philosophical discussion about what constitutes sex. And part of that for me meant that there's at least other people involved. Eva oh. was like, no, no, you can have sex with yourself. And I'm like, well, doesn't that then bring the question of consent into the picture of like being able to consent with yourself, which to me seems like a, a, a confusing thing. I'm like, how could you not consent to yourself? So now that you've mentioned it, I think you probably have deeper insights on this that I'd love to, to yeah. hear. Well, that's where a lot of the, of the magic is. So like when I'm teaching consent to students, to clients, um, to anyone, there's a really, the sort of go-to response is like, oh, that has happened to me. You know, someone has pushed me or like I have not been given full space to say no in the situation. And what I am always encouraging people to do is to also look at the other way, look at the way that they have, and not just pushed other people, but that they have pushed themselves to do things that they weren't super comfortable with. Thinking very often the thoughts that you're having are like, I want someone else to want to hang out with me again or want to work with me again or want to have sex with me again. And so there's a little bit of this like external perception that you're then using to put pressure on yourself to do stuff that might not be exactly what you're ready for in the moment. And I did this to myself like all through my 20s. Um, in a sexual capacity. And it was never, I never felt coerced. I never felt pressured by other people. There was a pressure that I was putting on myself to be this kind of like, you know, this idea of a woman in quotes that I thought would be cool or that I had, you know, witnessed get things that I wanted, for example. And, and when I'm teaching consent, one of the things that, that I think brings in the most the most magic, the most potential for, for being present, for being mindful, for being grounded, for empathizing is all the nonverbal cues of consent. Those are also things that um, cue you into other people's emotional states. And again, really, really useful for noticing what other people are experiencing, like their, their prosody, which I think we talked about, Pat, which is the sound of what you say. So it's how you say what you say. It's everything besides the words. Um, looking for changes in things like eye contact, body language, breath, heart rate, sweat, things like that. And so those are really useful for you to notice in other people, but they're also incredibly useful for you to notice how you are feeling. Very often we're just sort of blasting through, you know, we have an agenda, we have a schedule, like we got to do stuff. And so we're not that tuned in to the indicators of our emotional state and where our nervous system is at. And with more and more attention to that, 
that's where the self consent piece is. It's like, I, I wrote a whole article about consent internally consent with myself for salty. And it was largely about like my history of medical trauma and how every time I go to the doctor, I start to have panic symptoms. I start to hyperventilate. I start to, my heart rate goes up. Um, like even getting my, like my blood pressure tested, like I start to feel really panicky and that comes from a history of trauma that I'm aware of. And I, my, you know, everything in my body is saying, no, like I'm nauseous. I have to poop like everything about everything in my body is like, don't go to the doctor. You hate going to the doctor. Don't do it. And I have to negotiate internally and push myself past my no. So that's, that's like, we're doing stuff like that all the time. And it, it's really crucial in terms of mitigating trauma, because when we have access to this sense of choice, so we can do things that we don't want to do. We just have to have that sense of choice and, you know, and be present through it uh, so that we're doing it deliberately and conscientiously so that we don't end up with PTSD from this thing that we pushed ourselves to do. And in order to do that, we have to be very, very aware of what's going on in our body. And as you know, and I'm sure your listeners know, there are loads of barriers to being aware of what's going on in your body. So the way that I'm understanding this now because I didn't understand it before, is through the lens of maybe societal norms and pressures as something that you know you adopt and then you have to kind of negotiate with, like, do I want to do this? Do I not want to do this? And a lot of times I can feel like pressures that you don't really know where they're coming from and leading to behaviors that you might not want to engage in. Mm-hmm. Or things like internalized misogyny, internalized homophobia, all sorts of these phobias that can yes. become internalized and, and self-damaging. So then that makes me curious about what violating your own consent looks like and then mm-hmm. who at that point is accountable in that scenario. Because when you have another person, you can say, this person's accountable, they violated my consent. But when it's you, my worry is, does that not make you then blame yourself and spiral into something even worse? Yeah, it can definitely lead to that. I think you know, there's, there's ways that that blame, like blame is retroactive. So when I'm thinking about blame and I'm thinking about blame as like something that I kind of want to avoid every time I have a thought of like, well, I put myself in that situation or like, I, you know, I, I did something that I didn't want to do because I wasn't, because I was distracted, you know, like that's a sort of retroactive blame. The way that I try to look at it is I shift it towards being future oriented. And I'll say to myself, how do I, like, what did I learn from that? And how do I prevent it from happening again? What are the systems and the practices that I need to put in place so that I'm aware sooner that that's what's happening And that's only if I end up doing something that I didn't want to do. There are things that I end up, you know, that are a no for me that I'm, I'm choosing to do. And I don't necessarily want to do them enthusiastically, but I'm, I've started to replace the word enthusiastic with engaged. I can be engaged and give consent and, and choose to do something that my body is like, you do not want to do that because Maybe it'll get me something that I want in my career. Maybe it'll make someone else in my life happy. You know, maybe it's going to really help someone else, even though it's something that I really don't want to do. And so after the fact, it's not that I'm blaming myself, like you shouldn't have done that. It's like, what did you learn from that? Would you do that again? If not, 
Is there anything about it that you would do again? You know, how do I then like incorporate what I've learned from that moving forward? Okay. And then the last thing that I'm going to ask, because <laughs> um, I know, yeah, as you probably have some questions is why then go with the, the term consent, especially because it's so loaded in the world of, of sex. Why use the term consent when talking about these negotiations with yourself rather than something like self-awareness, mindfulness, whatever other words that, that describe this process of kind of negotiating your own boundaries within and dealing with societal norms and pressures? That's a good question. The thing coming to mind is that it didn't occur to me to call it anything else because it feels exactly the same, like the same process to me as what I'm doing when I'm negotiating consent with other people. If I'm, if I'm sort of being in consent, and this is a phrase that a colleague of mine used that I love, being in consent with yourself or being in consent with other people, that you can, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're in that space and you're in that mindset and you're engaged in that way, I just, the way that I experience it is that it's exactly the same. I'm having those same conversations, those same dialogues internally. And I, I have this um, diagram that I, made called the yes to no spectrum and on the far far side towards no is coercion so it's like if if i don't then or if i do then you know and what i've noticed the more that i do this work is that i'm the one coercing myself most of the time i'm the one saying if i don't do this they won't hire me again or if i don't do this this friend is not going to want to hang out with me again usually that's me and whether it's a projection or assumption or based in reality I'm often the one putting myself in situations where I might not want to do something and I'm pushing myself to do it. Okay. So I think what I'm, what I'm hearing is that in, in a sort of like peripheral sense is by using the sort of language of consent to have these self-negotiations, you make that link to consent in general with other people clearer and then when mm. you see those boundaries of coercion slash being in consent, it's more helpful when you try to externalize consent as boundaries with others. And that that sort of connection, I think, makes sense to me as you're speaking as a way to, to really see the lineage between self-coercion and other coercion and then being able to set up clearer boundaries for yourself probably with others once you've negotiated them with yourself. Yeah, I really like how you put that. And what it's what it's bringing to mind is like that same theme of practicing something internally before you start to, you know, not before necessarily, like, I don't think it's linear, but that the more that you practice something with yourself, the easier it comes with other people. The piece that seems the most interesting to me is the differentiation that you made between recognizing that, okay, maybe my body is giving me signals towards what feels like a no, but then you're having some sort of conversation with yourself about whether or not it's actually something that's going to be really good for you. And the differences between coming up against a no that feels dangerous or harmful versus one that just feels really uncomfortable and perhaps frightening because uh, it's going to put you in a potentially uncomfortable position, like going to the doctor, something mm. that you know that you, you kind of got to do and that it's going to be better if you go. How do you, in your own body or with the clients that you're, you're coaching on one-to-one -one settings, help them differentiate between a no that is like truly you are coming up against a boundary and like, do not go there versus the ones where your fear and your anxiety are giving off the same like physiological sensations to like dangerous fear. But like, how do you know when to push is, is kind of what I'm asking. Yeah. Well, okay. So there's two distinct things that, that you're asking about. One is when you're 
uncomfortable and you push yourself to do something because it might cause, it might help you grow and expand and learn new things or explore something that, that you're curious about. Um, and then there's the other part that is, um, that I'm, that I've been talking about, which is when something is truly feels dangerous to you, feels unsafe to you and perhaps is, and you choose to do that anyway. So I do think that you can choose to do things that feel unsafe and you can do them conscientiously and deliberately and care for yourself through them and before and after them um, in ways to prevent PTSD. Like, for example, I work on on sets and sometimes there's a way that I feel that I am required to advocate for an actor with, let's say, a producer or a director who does not make me feel safe. We're saying to this director, like, we can't do that, or that's, we did not talk about that beforehand, and we can't do that, is I'm, I am truly concerned that that will lead to some, a situation that will be unsafe for me, but I'm choosing to do it because my job is as an actor advocate. So that's what I mean by like doing something that's a definite no for me, choosing to do it on someone else's behalf. I this like this idea is coming to mind or this example is coming to mind because I've been watching the OC again. I've been like mining it for like really toxic information. And um and Ryan like decides to he's gonna deliver a stolen car, even though he promised he would stay out of trouble and he doesn't want to do it because his brother is getting beaten up in prison because the stolen car has not been delivered to where it needs to go. So that was an instance for me where I was like, that's a clear no for Ryan. That's unsafe for him. He could, he's on, he's on probation or something like he could get, he could get arrested. He could get, he could get sent back to jail, but he's choosing to do it for someone else. So that's a, that's a different situation. The question around like when something is uncomfortable, but it's good for you and it's something that you want to push yourself to do, that's on the yes side of the spectrum. And that goes under the umbrella of uncomfortable. I can show you the diagram afterwards. Yeah, I'd love to see it. The no side is where it's unsafe. And that's where we have things like coercion and like shooting yourself. There's a lot of external pressures on that side. So differentiating between those two sides um, there's two things that I do. One is to get is I ask people to really feel physically in their body what it feels like to be uncomfortable versus unsafe. So for me, like a lot of my stuff lives in my gut. So when I'm feeling um, nervous, uncomfortable, I usually get that like those butterflies. Sometimes I get nauseous. And that's something um, that I've had to learn does not mean that I'm unsafe, even though it feels that way. Um, and that's called faulty neuroception when you have them kind of confused. So, so I get a little nauseous, I get butterflies, I'll like my, feel my chest kind of open up and I get this like outward curiosity. I'll like look up and out. And then on the no side, I get these like sinking feelings in my gut. I get this like sort of pit in my stomach, pressure in my chest. And I've noticed that I tend to like look down and to the right. So these are the observations around my own body language, my eye contact, my prosody, uh, my heart rate, my sweat, you know, all these, my breath, all these things that I'm becoming aware of so that I can gauge where I'm at. And first it's the awareness around like what happens in which situation. And then once I'm more aware of them, more in tune with that, I, I can think less. I can just go, oh, I have that feeling. I think this is a no. This is pretty clearly a no. 
or oh yeah this is that this is that moment where i'm supposed to push myself to do it because i'm so afraid to do it and it means that i need to do it the other way that i've helped people get in touch with this is that on the yes side the thoughts that you're having are usually very self-oriented they're very self-reflected it's usually self-reflective it's like what would that feel like to me would i like that will i regret not doing that do i want to try that it's usually very much about yourself And then on the no side, it's really about other people. It's like, what are they going to think of me? What will happen to my reputation or my career? Or will they break up with me? So noticing who you are thinking about in those moments can really help you identify which side that you're on. I love how specific you've been able to get with your own (laughs) uh, signs, like looking down to the right. That's so, so inquisitive. Yeah, that's a new one that I found. It's really cool. Okay. I, I felt you liking that. I was like, oh, it's so specific. <laughs> they know themselves so well. It's so cool. Um, That's something that Yaz really, really likes about other people is the sense of mindfulness. I know you appreciate that. Yeah. I just, I, I find it to be like a superpower, even when people yeah. be able to feel like different things and know what it is that that's telling them. And I teach a class uh, called Intimate, and it's all about developing self-intimacy using like five main pillars of the practice, like still movement, dynamic movement, verbal affirmations, self-touch and sound, um, and one other that I'm forgetting at this time. And we talk mindfulness. all... No, well, mindfulness is kind of like seeped into Throughout, the entire yeah. thing, but we spend a lot of time in a lot of our sessions talking about internal boundaries and trying to feel into different sensations to determine what is a yes, what is a no, and using our words out loud to ourselves to say, yes, I really like that. Can you continue doing that? Or no, I didn't like that. And this is what I'm noticing with myself um, as a way to yeah, practice that with ourselves. And then to eventually, if we want to be able to strengthen our communication about our desire and our boundaries with other people, mm-hmm. something that really stands out to me about what you said that maybe I'm being selfish hijacking this a little no, bit no, because I, 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 <laughs> this, I totally... I'm so curious about this in terms of my own work, but I'm fucking terrified at the thought of asking somebody to think about or imagine an unsafe situation. So I mm-hmm. tend to just, uh, you know, teeter on like, okay, what feels uncomfortable here? Let's notice what the what the signs and symptoms internally, mentally, emotionally are when we are uncomfortable. But like, how do you approach guiding people to determine what their unsafe feelings are from a trauma perspective? One of the things that I often have clients do, and and in my classes, I have students do this as well, is I have them make their own version of the yes to no spectrum with like memories in each point. So the yes side has things like curiosity, challenging yourself, learning something new. So, you know, you find a memory of like a time that that happened or, or something that you're, you know, maybe a future, like a fantasy situation, something like that. And then on the no side, it's things like deferring to other people's judgment, shooting yourself, backtracking, justifying, talking yourself out of your no and coercion. And so finding examples in each of those places that aren't necessarily like I'm usually not diving into sexual trauma. If I'm doing that, it's only in private sessions. I'm really not doing that in like group class situations. And usually it's things like, you know, you've been, you've felt coerced or you coerced yourself in a work situation or because you felt like your friend, you know, needed you to do something or 
shooting yourself in the sense of like, I should have a threesome because my partner wants to have a threesome instead of because you genuinely want to have a threesome or because, or maybe you don't even genuinely want to, maybe you're just curious about it, or it sounds like something that would be challenging and you'd like to see what that feels like. That's very different from feeling like if I don't do this, then my partner will leave me. So you can have these like theoretical unsafe situations and unsafe thoughts without like dredging up lots of trauma. How does one start to practice, like you said, having these kinds of conversations with themselves and doing this work internally, being in consent with themselves? I think, you know, to tie it into your work, it's really about mindfulness and awareness. Like the first, the first thing is just paying attention, noticing. And for, for me, that the way in the window in is, is through those bodily sensations. So it's a lot, a lot of it is like slowing down and, and being in a situation and starting to notice like, oh, Hey, that's, that's my, my freeze response. I must be stressed. Like one of the things that I've noticed for myself is my, my stress response. Like when I am in overwhelm, I want to go to sleep. I want to take a nap. Mm, Me too. And so, yeah. And so I've, I, used to go, oh, I need a cup of coffee or I need a nap. You know, like, oh, I must, I must be tired. So starting to understand the science, the physiology behind what's going on there, understanding polyvagal theory and going, oh no, that's my stress response. So, okay, what does that mean? Instead of reaching for coffee or taking a nap, maybe start with some water, maybe start with some breathing. And that is gonna be a moment where even though my body is saying, hey, you're in danger, my rational brain is going to sit, is going to step in and say, this is actually a moment to push through this. You should push, like, just try pushing a little bit. I think this is you having a stress response. And in fact, you are safe. Like, look at your surroundings, you know, you're not under threat. So yeah, just the noticing is the place to start. Well, I want to actually guide this to the initial question, which was about spirituality yeah, because I'm curious now how spirituality fits into this picture with consent. Yeah, and I, yeah, I have a few follow up questions, but that'll be the first. Yeah, I'll tell you what I got. So I was not expecting this certainly when I started out in this work, but what has become really clear for me, and I studied philosophy in college. I know that we have something in there in common. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was my major, and when I was sort of building this practice for myself and like bringing it into my life and starting to recognize that really everything that I, at any time that I was in a moment where, you know, certain people might like reach for a pendulum or I don't know, flip a coin or like whatever people do to leave their decisions up to some higher power. I was checking in with this like consent compass everything was sort of coming, coming through that lens for me. And it quickly became something of like an ethical or moral philosophy. It's, it, it's, it's my inner ethic. And I also, as I was training to be an intimacy coordinator, I was going through a a really major acute health crisis, sort of like a culmination of a lifelong um, health struggle. And I got my diagnosis within a month of starting to train for intimacy coordination. And as I was 
healing, I was learning about trauma in my work and it was applying so much to the healing that I was doing of my body and my own emotional healing. And so those two things became very intertwined. And the, the kind of health stuff that I've been dealing with, it's autoimmune, it's gut related. And I believe it's very ancestral. It's also genetic. And a lot, you know, I got to a point with it where I was like, all right, I've done everything with my diet that I can possibly do. I've done, I take all the pills that I could possibly take. I do all the physical things. So the piece here that I have been so resistant with my like, you know, colonial brain to really go into is the ancestral stuff, the emotional stuff, the spiritual stuff. So I was doing the artist's way as I was starting to intimacy coordinate and learn more about consent. And I started, you know, my meditation kind of shifted into, shifted into what I would consider more like prayer. I got very in touch with a higher power and even joined a temple. Like I went back to Judaism to look at some of what was there for me. And it, and my healing really became this, this really like significant spiritual journey that I would not have expected for myself. And in healing my gut, and it's like still happening, it's still a process. I think it's a forever thing. I became so much, so aware of the ways that I had been pushing through my boundaries, the ways that I had been ignoring my body and telling my body, no, I'm in charge. You know, my head is in charge. You need to like obey and really not listening to it so that it had to scream louder and louder and louder at me. So those things together really they're just completely woven for me. Like I cannot separate them. And consent became this spiritual practice of awareness, of mindfulness, of paying attention to myself and then to other people. And between like the practice that makes me feel present, that allows me to listen, that keeps me in my integrity and keeps me committed to like honesty, not just with other people, but with myself first that is how I move through the world. That's just how I operate. So to me, that feels like a spiritual practice, a, you know, a, a moral compass, an inner ethic, and, a, and a, a ritual practice. Okay. <laughs> you have a very, a very specific, specific is not the right word, detailed, You're very detailed in, in your answer, which, is, which I appreciate because it does kind of erase a lot of the a lot of the follow-up questions that I would have had. <laughs> One that I typically would have in this scenario is how do you define spirituality? And I think you did a pretty good job of, of defining mm -hmm. that for yourself, just because it sometimes tends to be a very vague and nuanced thing, right? So a lot of people might say, yeah, spirituality is having some sort of faith in a higher power. And that higher power can be anything that's just greater than the self. You know, some people mean religion and other people unfortunately rely on some toxic elements of spirituality, which I'm sure you're also aware of, which makes me want to ask about the intersection of sex, consent, and spirituality here, because the episode that we initially wanted to discuss was on, on sex and spirituality. And going into that episode, my sort of bias was there's so much toxic spirituality entering sex positivity mm -hmm. from the perspective of like spiritual bypassing and using spirituality as a gateway to access sexual favors, bypass consent, become some right. sort of guru to touch people's bodies, like the fucking squirt wizards that are typically right. cis men. So in that realm, I just wanted to, to do that episode to kind of tackle some of these issues. So I wonder 
if you've thought about this a little bit in terms of your practice, your view of spirituality and consent and how that can apply to maybe a healthy spiritual consensual practice when it comes to sex. Yeah. Well, what's coming up for me right now is that I have been untouched essentially since COVID started. That's been like this funny thing where I'm, you know, I'm teaching other people consent and I'm like, like people are reporting to me that their sex lives are being enhanced by this and their romantic relationships are being enhanced by all this work. And I'm like, that's fucking awesome for you. <laughs> like, when is it my turn? Um, but, <laughs> you know, that's just where I am right now in, in my own journey. And I've had to really look at like how much of this is COVID and how much of this is just me sort of like being closed off and not being available in this way. And, and is it closed off or is it like I'm you know, is this, is this what solo dating is like? Like, is this just me being really committed to myself? Anyway, that's not exactly your question. So sex, sex for me, I have for a long time described it as my chosen form of artistic self-expression. It's like the most creative thing that I get to do. And it feels, it feels very generative. It feels, it truly does feel like, like art. And for me, art and spirituality are very intimately tied. Um, a lot of what I've found, like a lot of the magic of consent in, in my experience and how it has shown up in my life is that it has helped unblock creative channels of flow. Like stuff has come into my life that I like, I'm, I'm writing an album right now. I've been playing guitar for a year and a half and I've just been absolutely obsessed with it. And I've been writing more and I've, I have had less resistance to starting things. And I really do think that that's because I'm in a much more engaged relationship with, with my body. And I don't, I don't make it do stuff that it doesn't want to do anymore for the most part and being aware of those boundaries. And so when my body is like, I do not want to do that instead of saying, well, you fucking have to get in line. I'm like, all right, well, maybe you'll want to later. And I just go do something else. So the sex piece here is that for me, a lot of this work is about authentic self-expression. And that requires me to be present and engaged, to really listen, which means I'm not anxious in my head. I'm not obsessing about myself and how I'm being perceived and all this stuff. And I find that the activity in my life, the space that I enter in my life where that is the easiest for me and I feel the most in creative flow is during sex or in intimate spaces with, with people where like where touch is involved. So that transcendent feeling really shows up there sort of with the most ease and clarity. I was also kind of wondering if there's any way that you look at, at your spiritual practice, maybe in terms of the ritualistic elements or some of the ways that you want to share that spirituality with others and how that can avoid some of the the toxic things I mentioned about mm. the type of spirituality that's entered the sex positive communities, because as an internal practice, that's all for you, you know, in general, but when you begin to share that, and some people do this when they become so called gurus in the sex positive communities, they try to be evangelical, in some sense mm -hmm. about their spirituality with others and share it. And sometimes they may have really good intentions. But yeah. as we know, that's not often sufficient. So I was just wondering about that when it comes to, to sharing those spiritual practices with other people. First of all, if that's something that you consider doing, second of all, when you do that, if there's 
any parameters because you did mention that your spirituality is rooted in ethics uh, in terms of avoiding the, the toxic elements of spirituality? There's a couple things that come to mind. One is this word that has meant a lot for me for a long time, but also specifically comes out of Betty Martin's Wheel of Consent, which is integrity. And that requires me to be transparent with myself first and foremost. So when I'm thinking about like these abuses of power that you're talking about, there's a lack of integrity there. And also the another thing that came to mind was power dynamics. So like when I'm engaging in a sexual activity with someone in my life, if there's, I mean, there's always power dynamics at play. And I feel my feeling is that in order to be truly in consent, I have to be having open conversations about the power dynamics at play. Another thing that's coming to mind is that in consent education, and when I've learned about consent and through intimacy coordination as well, we talk a lot about, and, and this does show up in my work, I think a bit differently, but it does. We talk about containers. So, you know, you establish a container in which whatever's consented to in that container is not also consented to outside of that container. The boundaries that exist in that container don't necessarily exist in other containers. And the vulnerability that's shared in that container is not necessarily shared in other containers. So those containers can be set up by things as simple as walking through an entryway. So, you know, I go into, I invite someone into my bedroom and now we are in the, this container. It can be something bigger than that, clearer than that, like, you know, saying a prayer or lighting a candle or yeah, whatever you want it to be. And usually it is demarcated by some kind of ritual. And for me in my work and the way that I teach it, ritual is routine with meaning. So it's anything that you decide has meaning. When I'm looking at being in that space of integrity, a ritual can really help solidify that, especially if it's something that you build with another person. You know, when we do this, we're going to mark it with this and close it with this. And that also that like elevates the what's going on within that container and allows it to sort of exist, exist separately, exist on its own. And that feels very powerful to me. I mean, that's just what I anticipated because it sounds like obviously within your spirituality, consent is baked into it because it's sprung from there. So it yeah. makes sense to me that, you know, in your practice of it, consent would be at the forefront. And this is, you know, this is what I anticipated asking this question. Just, <laughs> I want to hear some of those ethical parameters and how it operates for you, because it might be helpful to hear for the some of the the people out there who are very spiritual and very, very open, but sometimes not very careful. And I think it's important to to listen to these things and not just from a critical perspective, from somebody who's outside of, you know, spirituality and just saying, yeah, spirituality is a bunch of hoo-ha and I don't like it. And this is why you are a bad person and some of the practices that you do are dangerous. But it's nice to hear from people within spiritual practice and communities who are careful, who do have ethics and, um, you know, good knowledge of consent to be able to to give that information because it sounds more credible and mm. gentle you've just got a strong negativity bias babe like a what a strong <laughs> negativity bias like negativity bias yes you often assume <clears throat> that everybody within the the spiritual community is lacking I in ethics I, and boundaries i don't i don't think that i just i am critical of the bad elements of spirituality i'm not very spiritual myself but I'm open to to hearing about it and 
in other instances where I've asked people who are spiritual to kind of, you know, talk about it a little bit, I was not very impressed by their level of awareness around the, the practices that they do. And that's just my limited experience. So I, what I was trying to say is that I'm thankful to have asked He's you. impressed is what he said. <laughs> well, you made me think of something that we were already talking about, the way that you were describing this. Like it, it does back to this idea of integrity where like a lot of spiritual practices, like for, for me, the self piece, and again, this is like the self-consent thing. It's everything has to be filtered through through me. So I'm, whenever someone is like, this is what you're supposed to do, you know, light a candle or like say a prayer or like whatever I'm getting, that's like, this is how you do it. I'm checking in with myself. Is, am I doing this because someone told me to, or am I doing this because it really feels authentic to me? And that's back to that yes to no spectrum. Like on the yes side, I'm going to be doing stuff that feels that does feel authentic, that comes from a true place to me. And I've also started to notice that like, I was talking about those bodily reactions to things. Like when I encounter some truth that feels so deeply true that it, that my experience is that it is ancestral. um, I take this incredibly deep breath. I've started to notice that over the last couple months. So when I take that breath, I go, Oh, Hey, like there's a nugget, you know, like hang on to that one. And so with, with the spirituality, I think people get in trouble when they say, this is how you do it. These are the rules. And if you don't do that, then you don't get to be, uh, you don't get to call yourself, you know, one of us. And then people kind of fall in line mm-hmm. as opposed to, and this is something that I really do love about Judaism. It's all about questioning and checking if this is right for you. And then kind of putting it into integrating it into your life in a way that feels organic and real for you, not just because someone told you to. Right. So instead of it being sort of prescriptive and dogmatic, it's yeah. more open to interpretation and for the self, which is also true of, of things like Buddhism. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So definitely I think the place that I, I would like to end if, if you're cool with it, I'd love to hear about the magic of consent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where this practice has kind of led you yeah, you said it sounds like things have kind of shifted for you in the last little bit. You've realized some things. Will you share yeah. with us these things? Yeah. So the piece about creativity, I have a, th- I mean, that feels, creativity feels very spiritual to me. I don't think that that's something that I can separate. And when I'm really in flow, it feels like a spiritual encounter or or experience. The magic, I have some theories about this that that are like, a little scientific. The the creativity piece, I think, comes from what I've read about polyvagal theory and attachment theory is that basically in order to play, in order to be creative, in order to explore, you have to feel a sense of safety. And that's both external and internal. But if you move through the world with a pretty solid internal sense of safety, then even in situations that might feel unsafe to you, you have this sense of I'm going to be okay. And so you're able to play and be creative. So there's that element where, where that sense of safety that you create with consent, with a strong consent practice in your life with yourself and with other people allows you to expand and grow and, you know, create and generate new things in the world. It seems to remove these like things like writer's block. Like I just don't really experience that anymore. And when I do, it's, um, 
it, my attention just gets shifted to another thing. So it's not like I'm ever sort of experiencing this just like creative death anymore. And then the other part that brings the magic to it is all these nonverbal things that I've been talking about, prosody, eye contact, body language, breath, heart rate, sweat, being attuned to those indicators of how you are feeling with yourself and being attuned to those indicators of someone else's emotional state literally enhance psychic abilities. Like you can read other people's minds to a certain degree because you're paying attention. You're listening on such a deep level that you're, you're collecting so much more information than you were when all you were really listening for was the words that they were saying or the words that you were saying. So through that attunement, the magic just start. I mean, it just comes like the synchronicity in my life. Just it's unreal. Like the things that happened to something happened yesterday where I just was like, that is so unbelievable. And yet totally believable. I was in a session with a client and he was telling me that he had asked a friend, this was like related to some work that we were doing. He was like, I asked this friend if they were available, if their friend was available for brunch on Saturday and she said no. And so, you know, we went through like what it meant to be disappointed about that, what it meant to be, um, to feel rejected by that, you know, whatever. As we were talking, we talked about it for maybe three minutes. And as we were talking about it, he received a text message from that person saying, actually, she is available for, for brunch on Saturday. I mean, that was, that was spooky. And that's not even like, that's, that's like the tip of the iceberg. I mean, the stuff that, that comes through, especially with that client, actually, we have like a lot of, it's really strong there. There's a lot of synchronicity between us. Um, He's, he's also a friend. He's an old friend. So stuff like that just keeps happening or like I'll learn something one day and then immediately after that, someone else brings up the same thing. And I used to think that these things were like, maybe I'm just noticing them more, or maybe I'm just like tapped into the zeitgeist or something. But that to me, that is magic. Like that level of presence and that level of awareness and that intense level of full body listening to more than just the words, it is magic. I, I don't know how else to put it. Like it just the ways that things flow and connect and weave and braid together, witnessing that as magic, as something that is perhaps designed or something that I am helping to facilitate by sort of like oiling the channels so that it can flow better. Like that's the way that I'm sort of harnessing the magic around me, I guess. All right. Are you satisfied? <laughs> I, yeah, I think we got that. We got a, a full, eloquent. I learned a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's been, <laughs> it's been a pleasure. This was a great conversation. I feel like you really got my brain firing, so I really appreciate it's, it. It's firing. You, you yeah. got. Uh, yeah, you you know how to talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you. totally. Thank okay. you. You can find Mia Schachter on Instagram at Consent Wizard. If you want to see any of their work or sign up for any of their classes or workshops, check them out.